was a character called the Rongbuk Lama, who was considered a very important religious figure in Tibet, a reincarnation of, of the Buddha. And he kept a spiritual diary called a Namtha. It's one of the few documents written by a native in inverted commas, giving it from their perspective. And what's it so interesting is that his version of meeting the first British team in 1922 is that he says to them, why are you trying to get to the top? And, and they say to him, oh, well, it's a pilgrimage, that it's a holy mountain for us and we want to get as high as possible. But when he writes it in his diary, he says, they told me that they wanted to get a big prize and a lot of recognition in their own country. And you think, well, hang on, these two things are rather different. And why is it there's such a discrepancy? This is The Way Podcast. The militias needed to have a heads up that I was coming. I personally think they didn't, you know, like in chess. So that's how deep the addiction goes. I've been incarcerated most of my life. Having a conversation with Bill. They've been given no option, either join or die. Snipers, and it was a military. J. Cole came and hung out most of the fire session. I'm standing at the studio glass looking out into the studio. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. This is Bill with The Way Podcast on FM 91.7, WHOS stores at the top of the hour. Also, FM 90.3, WRIU, South Kingston at the top of the hour. Today... I'll be talking with Mike Conifree. For 30 years, he's been making documentaries for the BBC and all major British and US channels. He's been everywhere from the Arctic to the Himalayas to Encore Wat and has written books on mountaineering and exploration. Today, we're going to be talking about his book, Everest 1922, the epic story of the first attempt on the world's highest mountain. Don't forget to give a five-star rating, like, review, share the show. Every little bit helps. You can find more information at podcasttheway.com. Follow on Instagram or Twitter at podcasttheway. Sorry, I got to ask, but it does help the show. Again, information at podcasttheway.com. I just want to ask, like, what's your favorite one you climbed? I'm more of a historian than a climber. Um, and so I've been to the bottom of a lot of big mountains and to the top of a lot of small mountains. So in terms of the bottom of big mountains, it's probably K2, if that's the most dramatic um, kind of setting. And then in terms of the top of smaller mountains, well, um, I don't know, Ilinitsa or Cotopaxi in, um, in South America and Ecuador or... Right, so you explored the world, you saw this mountain here, this one there. Yeah, yeah. I you was lucky, I was a documentary maker. So yeah. I was usually filming at the bottom. Side note, I think Mount Washington, New England, has the highest death rate for yeah. mountains because we yeah. have just such a sporadic weather. Uh, I think it just depends on how you measure it, doesn't it? It's like yeah. you measure it, the number of total deaths or the number of deaths per person who try to get to the top, you know, I mean... Um, I don't know what the kind of the most dangerous mountain is. I mean, uh, I mean, a lot of people die on small mountains as well as big ones. You know, it's basically a kind of fairly dangerous environment, you know. Yeah, I feel like the bigger the mountain, the more prepared you come, which helps yeah, no, make exactly. you safer. Yeah, yeah, it's a question of being caught out in a, in a place where you don't really want to be. And yeah, you said you're a director, you filmed for BBC and you've made documentaries. 
what's it like going to these different mountains or like why would you make a documentary on this mountain or that one what's your work well, like I, I was interested in the the historic ones the the ones which were the firsts really so they were the the sort of biggest mountains or the ones which were considered the hardest you've got a comedy microphone there um yes the stories that i was interested in were the ones which were where there was a sort of big um where the stakes were high and so you know if it comes to and obviously the himalayas is the most the clearest example of that because um these were the where you know i think of the the world's 14 8000 meter peaks by far the majority of them are in the himalayas um obviously everest is the tallest mountain in the world right in the middle of them and then k2 is in another mountain range slightly to the north called the karakoram and um but m most of the big mountains are in the himalayas and so therefore they were seen as the big prizes and and because they were the big prizes they were very pressurized events and there was a lot at stake and um that was what made it interesting from a kind of documentary perspective to kind of um to look at what happened to people when they were under big pressure you know yeah and in terms of your latest book about mount everest yeah. i read prior to that one of those big goals to reach was the north and south pole like that's where people were that was sort yeah. of the focus at that time yeah they you know there, there was an era which of what you would call prize exploration where people basically said well look you know what are the most important points on the earth and um they were the north pole and the south pole and then sometimes people refer to everest as the third pole because it was seen as uh, because obviously it was the highest point you know so um the you know it was always the ist you know so for example it was kind of finding the source of the longest river in the world which should be the the nile uh, or the, the um you know it was like go longest river in africa sorry um the um you know th these were the things which were unique and so therefore they people saw them as geographical prizes i think by you know by the beginning of the 20th century people realized that there was no purpose uh, for for getting there apart from for the sheer pleasure of saying I'm the first person to be there. But that didn't stop people putting a lot of time and energy into it. Yeah, speaking of purpose, the um, one of your chapters, it was, I'm going to say the name wrong, but Rang Buk Lama. Yeah. Yeah, he asked the people hiking the mountain, the story, that I'll ask you who the characters are. But he asked them, why do you want to climb this mountain? And then he kind of got like two different answers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because... You know, the voice that you never hear from the early stories of Himalayan climbing is the voice of the Sherpas or, or the voice of the natives whose land was traversed by uh, the climbers. One of the few exceptions to that um, was a character called the Rongbuk Lama, who was considered a very important religious figure in Tibet, um, a reincarnation of, of the Buddha. And he kept a diary, a spiritual diary called a Namtha, and so it's quite interesting that uh, it's one of the few documents written by a, a native in Verticomas, which uh, giving it from their perspective. And what's it so interesting is that his version of meeting the first British team in in 1922 is that um, that 
they he says to them, "Why are you trying to get to the top?" and and they say to him, "Oh, well, it's a pilgrimage." Uh, that it's a holy mountain for us, and we want to get as high as possible. Uh, but but when he writes it in his diary, he says they told me that they wanted to get a big prize and a lot of recognition in their own country. And you think, well, hang on a minute, these two things are rather different. And and why is it there's such a discrepancy? It probably is because the translator who was between them um, was kind of telling each side what they wanted to hear and trying to make them feel good about themselves. So I think, you know, these Buddhist monks who live next to Everest, they thought it was kind of completely pointless what the British were doing. To an extent, they thought that they shouldn't be there because, you know, mountain tops were the kind of homes of the gods and you should leave them well alone. It wasn't the case that Everest was a particularly holy mountain, um, but nevertheless, they they couldn't see the the reason why anybody would risk their life uh, for something which was so symbolic, if you like, and um, um, and so it's a sort of interesting kind of culture clash. Obviously, very different from what it's like today, where there are a lot of Nepalese climbers, and you know the uh, the, the bug for wanting to get to the top of Everest is a fairly universal one now. And if you look, there are very few countries where at least one person hasn't been to the top of Everest, you know. Yeah, it seems like one of those, it's almost like a tourist attraction. Oh, you could go see the Grand Canyon, you can go see a Coliseum, you could hike Mount Everest. Just That's what I heard is a big problem. A lot of people think they can hike it because they're strong and in shape. Uh, I think, well, what, what, what the difference, you know, in, in the 19th, back in my book about, you know, comparing 1922 to... Uh, um, to 2022, you know, I think last year or this year rather, in 2022, I think there's something about 700 people climbed Everest in this climbing season in the spring this year. Um, and in 1922, nobody managed to climb Everest, but the actual number of potential candidates was only really five or six people. You know, you could it was simply inaccessible that you had to jump through enormous political hoops just to get there, just to be allowed to be in Tibet, you know. Whereas now, all you have to do, basically, is have enough money. You know, I, I start my book, Everest 22, with a, a quotation from a sort of brochure from a particular company where it says, you know, no matter how old and infirm you are, we can still get you to the top of Everest, as long as you're willing to pay us lots of money, effectively. And every year, it's probably it's true to say that it's getting marginally easier that's not to say that it's not still difficult and not dangerous, but, you know, if you look this year, the number of people who are using helicopters to fly into base camp or even higher to skip base camp, you know, uh, and um, there's this kind of thing of um, there's an English newspaper, the Financial Times, you know, they had an article Everest for the time-pressed executive that that you have a lot of people who see it as a trophy in the same way yeah. as killing a lion or, or whatever you know, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and but at the same time, these people who are in the middle of you know corporate takeovers haven't got that much time, and so mm -hmm. there is an industry which has sprung up, which basically facilitates it. That's, I mean, but that being said, you know, as I say, it's still a very dangerous and life-threatening thing to do, but it is not like it was a hundred years ago. You think one day they'll have like chairlifts or those big boxes? I forget what they're called. I just take you to the top. 
Uh, well, I don't know. I doubt it. But, I, I mean, I bet you one day they'll have somebody who will fly you to the top. I mean, at the moment, I don't think you could fly safely in a helicopter to the summit of Everest. But you get quite high up, you know, and people get rescued from higher up than base camp. And so, um, and if you if you look at what has happened in, in the Alps, that once upon a time, the Alps in Switzerland and France and Italy were thought of as being totally inaccessible and that nobody could go up them and there were lots of local legends telling you not to and and now it's commonplace and you know they have built one of the famous climbing challenges is to get to the to climb the north face of the Eiger but you can take a, a little train to get to the top of the Eiger basically you know it's a tunnel which goes through it you know so whether the, the Chinese have built an, an enormous road which basically I think pretty much goes from Lhasa up to base camp, you know. Um, so, and and I think there was talk of building a railway. So certainly, they see it as a sort of tourist attraction. Um, all that has been slightly thrown in the air by COVID, you know. But uh, but yes, it will become progressively more accessible. Yeah, I want to bring it back to your book in a minute. But about that, my researcher actually got kind of carried away with this episode. She emailed me saying, oh, I got obsessed with the um, facts around Everest. Usually she sends me like 10 pages. She sent me 19. <laughs> and one of the things about the accessibility was the record is an 80-year-old person once climbed Mount Everest and a 13-year-old 11-month kid once climbed Mount Everest. Like that just blows my mind. They're already doing that. And you ever see that picture where it's the top of Mount Everest, but there's a like a line of I don't know, a hundred people all waiting to see the peak. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the partly the reason why that it happens these days is because of 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 both the kind of communications technology. It's not just about the numbers of people; it's about the numbers of people going at the same time. And the reason why so many people want to go at the same time is because of modern weather forecasting and the fact that you can also have commute computers and mobile phones or whatever, which tell you the weather forecast. And so, you know, whereas in 1922, they had it was just sheer guesswork. They thought that um, the um, the climbing season was basically May, really, and it would extend a little bit into June. And and then after that, the monsoon had hit, and there'd be masses of snow, and that would make it impossible to climb. But that was about as far as it went, really. They thought it was too cold in April and then the too much snow in June, really. So you just basically had a month. Whereas now you might sit in base camp and then you'd be on your laptop and you'd be looking for your latest weather forecasts and they'd say, all right, this is the best three days to try and go for the summit. Everybody gets the same news at the same time. So therefore they're all on this. They all make their attempts at the same time. So you get those cues at the summit, you know, whereas the day before there'd be nobody there. And it, 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 it's both the numbers, but also the fact that everybody is using the same equipment and forecasting the weather at the, in the same way, you know. Maybe I'm wrong, but isn't it, it like a 30-day hike? Well, again, it depends on how you get there, you know. I mean, I can't remember when we were filming there. I think, you know, it took about two two weeks. So it's about 15 days. But, but it, nowadays, you know, the number of people who would be using helicopters and flying in and... So I think that, you know, a lot of companies would, would, if you're willing to pay more money, you know, they would offer you like two, three-week turnaround, you know. 
So and that's the sort of yeah, in uh, and out, in and out, yeah, and then in and out, and then boast about it. You know, yeah. you get to the top, you take your nice Instagram, Facebook picture. All right, we got what we came for. Let's leave. Yeah, yeah, on to the next GTFO. Yeah, yeah. In that brief month or time they thought before is that the summit window that the people in your story kind of focused on yeah again you know that they, they they thought that if they, they if they got there too early it would be simply too cold and if they got there too late there would be too much snow and so therefore there'd be a lot of avalanches so you had to go for a sweet spot which was basically the end of may and that's what they were trying to hit. They were trying to hit late to end of May. And then they thought they might just have a chance of staying into a little bit of June. But but there was no really, no proper meteorological meteorological evidence. There were no weather stations nearby. They were basically, but there was a long history of knowledge about the monsoon hitting India to the south. And so they could extrapolate from it. But by two years later, they were, having weather forecasts sent to them from from uh, Sri Lanka, from Colombo, uh, because the, the way the monsoon works is it comes up the Indian Ocean and it passes Ceylon or Sri Lanka, as we call it now, first, and then it hits southern India, and then it works its way up India. And so the theory was that if, if you knew when it hit in uh, Colombo in Sri Lanka, that you might then be able to predict when it was going to hit the Himalayas. But, of course, the problem was it... You know, by the time they got the message, the postcard uh, from Colombo, uh, it was too late. You know, so it, that didn't really work. So that was the, that was a theory, but in practice, it didn't really work. So it wasn't. Re- and by the 1950s, when Everest was first climbed, you had slightly more sophisticated weather forecasting. No satellites or anything like that, and yeah. so the British team had special radio weather broadcasts uh, for themselves, you know, and uh, which were a little bit more accurate, but, I mean, they were still pretty primitive by today's standards. We've been, you know, it's a heat wave today. They've, they've been predicting that since last week, and they've been pretty accurate. They said they thought it would hit 41 degrees, and that's what it has. So, you know, the state of, of weather knowledge is quite, it's still not absolutely, you can't predict it absolutely, but you can you can get pretty good, you know. Not bad, because, yeah, over here, I feel I'm always making fun of the weather where they'll say, we're getting a foot of snow tomorrow, and yeah. then we get, like, an inch, maybe, or dusting. <laughs> well, it's it's always a probability, isn't it? You know, but but just it's more and more accurate, whereas in the 900 years ago, it was just very little. You, yeah. know, you just didn't have the communications networks, and you didn't have the satellites, which which enable you to do it today, you know. One thing from your book was uh, when still planning, they had somebody show up with a camera. I think they wanted to take a picture of, like, take a picture of the mountain where one inch would equal a mile. Right. Yeah. They, they were, you know, before they, when when the first teams arrived at Everest, they, there were no maps, you know. And so what they wanted to do was, in the first instance, before they attempted to climb it, was to map it. And they used what was then very high-tech equipment, which was a type of camera which you could use to record very accurately in, in a very predictable way. And you could use that afterwards to, um, you know, to create a very good map. And, you know, the, 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 the estimated altitude of Everest, which was done in, you know, 
almost 200 years ago in the 1850s was remarkably correct. You know, I think they estimated it at about 29,000 feet, and now we think it's about 29,030 feet, something like that, you know. So it was amazing that this, the measurements which were done from hundreds of miles away were remarkably accurate, you know. So, so although in some respects the equipment they had was very primitive, in other respects it was, it was very good, you know. So, um, yeah, yeah. I don't know if it was the same part, but there was a guy on the team. They took pictures. He has it sent out or something went wrong. Basically, he botched the photos because he put the yeah. film in upside down. Yeah, back to front. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, yeah. I mean, this is in, in that era that you, there were no digital cameras. And so you had photographic plates. Um, and that was, and they would be very good. If you look at some of the photographs from, uh, from that era, they are black and white, but they're remarkably detailed. And the kind of film that you had was, you know, you, it could be blown up to quite a, a, a significant degree. And, um, but you had to put the film into the camera the right way around because if you didn't, that you got nothing. And Mallory, who was known as the, the kind of great Everest climber, uh, who famously disappeared in 1924 and everybody thinks, well, did he or didn't he get to the top before he disappeared? But he was, he was very well known for being a bit of a klutz when it came to equipment and he was always losing things and he couldn't work out how to use the primer stoves and he, 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 he wasn't very good with cameras, you know. So um, imagine the frustration of spending weeks taking photographs and then to be told, oh, well, you put the film in the wrong way around, so you've got nothing and you've got to go back and do it again, you know. But obviously oh. you couldn't do it again necessarily um, you couldn't necessarily reach all the parts that you've been to. Yeah, I'd throw that camera on the ground. <laughs> I'd be like, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I swears I can't say on the radio. Throw it on the ground. <laughs> you wouldn't be happy, would you? Do the whole ritual. Do you yeah. think Mallory did make it to the top? I think it's. I mean, it's, it, probably the odds are no, uh, because um, because it was just so difficult. Because in, in 1924, um, it, it, was, it came right at the end of the expedition when they were all exhausted. It was the last throw of the dice. And you, you don't really want to be in that sort of last throw of the dice position. Um, but, it, it, you know, it's one of those eternal mysteries because you, people for, for the last 20 years have been obsessed with finding a camera, which they think will give the ultimate answer, you know, and as if a photograph could actually prove something. But, I mean, we all know that, that photographic images don't, don't necessarily prove anything, you know. Um, and uh, and yeah, so really... it's a photo from the top, something well, like that. Well, how can you tell? You know, how do you know what's the top? I mean, famously, the first ascent of the, the highest mountain in, in North America, Mount Denali, or McKinley, was faked by somebody who, um, who who went to a lot lower down and said, look at me, I'm standing at the top holding a, a Union Jack, you know, or sorry, not Union Jack, uh, Stars and Stripes, you know, but it was a fake photograph. So so, so, so going back to Mallory, the, the odds are against him just because it's so difficult and he was in a, um, right at the end of a, a very difficult expedition where he was 
he wasn't that well, he was exhausted. So you'd have to say the odds were against him, but you can't say definitively either way because it's because nobody knows. Yeah, it's kind of like the three guys that escaped from Alcatraz. Right. So one thing about your book I noticed is it doesn't cover the hike itself that much. The majority of the book is that sort of pretense or the process that went into actually beginning this expedition. Why is that? Uh, well, I mean, there is a certain amount about the actual the hike or the getting. When you say the hike, you mean the getting to the bottom or to the getting to the top? Again, uh, to the top. Because, yeah, you're right. There is a decent choke on the bottom. Yeah. Uh, well, because, I mean, you you can only go with the, I mean, it's a documentary book. And so it all is based on, on what we know. And so you you have to go with what the accounts are. Um, and, uh, you know, the, and what I was, the story I was trying to tell in the book wasn't simply about what it was like to be there. It was also about the world that created it and the politics behind it and, and what people were thinking back in England, and also the sort of pressures that the people in England were exerting on the people who were in Tibet, because, you know, they certainly had a feeling of pressure that um, they were, uh, you know, the expectations that were placed on them, the amount of money they'd spent, the kind of honour that was at stake, and a lot of that was coming from back home. And, you know, and, and also because, in a sense, that's what makes it different from nowadays. Nowadays, if you go to, to Everest, you know, it's generally it's a sort of individual um, ambition. It's a sort of individual achievement. And, and you, you, you know, but you don't feel like the fate of the whole country is depending upon you and that, that a lot of people are thinking about you. You know, you're just client number 15 on expedition yeah. number 10. And and it means a lot to you personally, and it might mean a lot to your family, but it doesn't really mean that much to the world, you know. Whereas in, in 1922, until until 1953, this was a major national event, and it was a little bit like going to the moon, you know, this sort of sense of one small step for man, one huge step for mankind, you know, that there were lots of questions about whether you could survive at that altitude, um, whether um, and it also it was seen as a, a supreme achievement which could inspire other people to lots of um, in their everyday lives to achieve things and again you know so it was a public goal for the people who were doing it it was a private thing as well but it was very much a public event whereas um, now it's not a public event and so I was kind of trying to look at what's unique about that story you know uh, you can find lots of dramatic contemporary stories about people climbing Everest and, and, you know, what happens to them. But they don't have a kind of national, international world dimension to that. And so, so that means also they're slightly less pressurized. What made this so big for England? I, they struggled at first to get the press to support them or, like, get the funds. What made this turn into such a big country focused thing i think because they 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 realize that i mean all of these things are so much motivated by the the, the need to sell the story you know in order to re you know it was a national event but it wasn't paid for by the government it was paid for by private individuals who donated their money and they you know when you look through the the records the, the letters at the time 
they were able to get support from from rich people offering them lots of money and poor people offering them a little bit of their savings and saying well i'm i'm there for you you know i'm with you this means something to me it was like they were fans and the fans felt they had a stake in the action because there had been a lot of publicity in the press um they had worked very hard to try and create this notion of of of, of this momentum this sense that that this was the first time it's going to happen and 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 therefore it's going to be very meaningful so i think it was it was just good marketing really but but also you know when it comes to there's always been a sort of phenomenon in 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 mountaineering what they call the armchair mountaineer you know the person who who doesn't really like going outside very much but likes reading about it you know and and the same thing with with kind of polar exploration as well you know a lot of people get quite excited about the idea of the latest book of the first person to go to the North Pole or, 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 or whatever, but wouldn't dream of really doing it themselves, but get a big thrill out of it. So um, it, it, that's that's been there from the kind of beginning, you know. Yeah, especially today with like Instagram or Facebook, social media, everybody loves to follow those accounts of, oh, I'd love to go see this part of Jamaica, or oh, I'd love to go see this part of England or Africa or Australia. Yeah. But nobody ever actually. Uh, buy, you gotta buy the ticket. You gotta plan what clothes you're gonna wear. You gotta. Uh, yeah. Not worth it. <laughs> yeah. If you live out the fantasy through other people, don't you? So, um, you know, there's a lovely letter I found from somebody who who signed themselves off. This was in 1922, as a sort of a workman who's always been excited about stories of adventure travel, you know, yeah. and feeling that they were sharing in it, you know. And um, again, in the same way that for for the Apollo story, you know, that there were a lot of people turning up at Cape Canaveral, looking at the uh, the rockets going into the air, or doing school projects about it because you know it's seen as this. And, and again, you know, but but the um, but it was a symbolic event, you know. I suppose again, I guess they didn't really know, but I think they had a pretty shrewd idea. They wouldn't find anything on the moon, just as in 1922, they had a pretty shrewd idea. There wasn't going to be some amazing god on the summit of Everest. But so it was a symbolic thing. It was to say, if we can get up here, we can conquer anything. If you can get to the top of Everest, what can't you do? You know? True. That's probably going to be the future with Mars. And then who knows what next planet. Give it like yeah. 20, 30, 100 years, and they'll be looking at that the way we did the moon. Another part of it, so like England was like a big backing for them. How about the local area? Like what did the, uh, I saw India turn them away early on, or there's the China side, there's the Tibet side. What was the local area like? Well, you know, in those days, Tibet was an independent country. It had been at war with China for centuries, but in the 1920s, it was independent and it, it was trying to survive as an independent state. And at that point, although they'd had a slightly complicated history, the British government were willing to give the Tibetan government machine guns, and this would protect them from the, the Chinese armies. And so there was a kind of mutual interest on both sides. The, 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 uh, um, I think, you know, probably to an extent, you know, that there was, it was seen as a, a symbolic victory for the, for the British Empire. But... 
But actually, to a large extent, the British diplomats didn't want it to happen. It was an irritation. They, they were worried in those days. The big worry was that India would, sorry, that Russia, rather, would move south in the way that Russia now has kind of invaded Ukraine because they want to get access to the Black Sea. Well, the big fear was that, it, it, that Russia would go down through India um, and try and get access to a warm water port. And so British diplomats didn't want to do anything that would rock the boat that might potentially annoy the Russians. And if sending a kind of British team to Everest, uh, there was a possibility that that might do that. So the diplomats didn't really like it at all. And they would prefer if it wasn't happening, you know. But the the, the, the British climbers were quite well connected and, and had ties to the um, to the, the foreign office and and were able to persuade enough people that oh yes this will be good for our prestige but I think it was they were climbers they they didn't think of themselves as they weren't trying to become famous really they just wanted to climb the mountain and if they had to talk the talk in order to do that then they were willing to do it but it was a means towards an end and that was that they just wanted to get to the top you know. because and also they wanted to explore this this country some of them just were fascinated by Tibet and how strange and weird it was. Uh, they'd never seen anything like it, you know. So they, some of them were had that kind of travel impulse. I want to go through someplace different. Uh, um, some of them, Mallory was very focused on climbing and wasn't that interested in local culture. But you can imagine it would have been a massive culture shock for anybody coming from, from the West to Tibet in the 1920s. Yeah, was it Mallory? Because I remember reading one person didn't really like the locals. Yeah, he he well, he just wasn't interested in them. <laughs> you know, he was <laughs> sort of, he 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 said they it was a hateful country inhabited by hateful people. To he, he just he just wasn't that interested. It was, all he wanted to do was was kind of get to the top and then get back home. That whereas there were other people on the team who wanted to photograph Tibetans and wanted to talk to them about. Buddhism, and we're interested in that, you know, in the same way that, you know, in life, you, there's always some people who are very goal-centered and want a specific thing. And then there are other people who are sort of a bit more broad in their horizons and kind of thinking, well, you know, we want to experience this exotic, strange culture. They had to plan the route they were going to take carefully, I believe. Didn't they have to avoid different areas? Why not come in through China or why not come through this face versus the face they chose? I, I think that they, they were looking for the easiest route in terms of, you know, for, for climbing difficulties. Um, but they, they knew that there were certain bits which were accessible. Nowadays, most people, the difference is, you know, if you look at this year, again, I think of the, there were maybe 650 people climbed Everest from the Nepali side and 50 people from the Chinese side. Because basically China closed the Tibetan border and said you can't come in because of their COVID policy. Um, and but in the in the 1920s it was impossible to get into to Nepal. And even though the kind of British Empire was the kind of biggest regional power, they didn't think they had enough power to persuade the, the Nepalese to let them in or the Nepali government to let them in. So. Partly their choices were dictated by trying to find the easiest possible route, safest possible route, and partly 
by the sort of political geography of it, because like a lot of mountains are sort of natural barriers, you know, uh, between different countries. And so if you look at the Alps, you know, one side of the Alps, you've got Italy, the other side, you've got France, you know, mountains are often natural barriers that separate off countries. And and so it was with, with Everest that it lay on the border of Nepal and Tibet. That's what helped keep Switzerland a neutral party in wars. Uh, well, that's what they think. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no? Well, I mean, Switzerland, yes, I suppose they have been. I don't know what neutrality means anymore. I mean, when push comes mm. to shove, you can be neutral and then Germany will still invade you in the First World War. It doesn't make that much difference. Fair enough. So in terms of the hike and the expedition, how would they, like, what were some climbing techniques they had? What were some challenges they faced? What was the climbing like for them? The, the big challenge for them was the, the altitude and dealing with it because they had, although they had very primitive oxygen sets, um, they, uh, they weren't very effective. And, and they were also, there was a big debate within the team as to whether using these oxygen sets was cheating or not. You know, some of them said, well, if you're going to do it, you've got to do it under your own lung power. And if you use oxygen, then it's cheating, you know. And uh, um, and then the rather said, no, you've got to use oxygen because otherwise you're not going to be able to do it. But the trouble is at the time, the oxygen equipment that they had on offer was very, very primitive. And so um, so that that was a kind of fundamental challenge. The, the thing about Everest, if you go up it from the from the Tibetan side, is that there's a kind of hard bit at the beginning getting up onto this feature called the North Coal, which is a valley between two mountains. Um, and then it, it kind of eases off for a bit. And then the slope is actually comparatively, uh, uh, um, you know, it's not too steep. And then when you get right to the top, it gets very difficult again. And so, that, but, but they didn't really know that. They could see, they thought, you know, in a way that they underestimated a little bit. They thought it would be easier than it actually was, um, and the but again, you know, it's the real difficulties came right at the top. It's this kind of sting in the tail for them. Um, so, um, in terms of kind of techniques, though, you know, that a lot of the things that modern climbers would have in terms of the kind of ice axes which they have, the the crampons which they have, that enables them to climb up in a way that they they didn't they couldn't have done it in the in the 1920s because they simply didn't have those bits of kit and so they hadn't evolved techniques to use them so it was pretty much plodding upwards and and then when they got right to the top they suddenly then just found that they had to they were dealing with quite difficult rock climbing and uh, and that was particularly exhausting um, because they hadn't really been expecting it they didn't know what to expect you know yeah yeah, war helped develop some O2 tanks in the past, but it was still so early on. And they tried adding water to Salith. Is that it? There, there was there was something that, that at the time they there was very you know this was the kind of the beginnings of oxygen cylinders, and they oxygen cylinders have sort of been really developed for um, the two big impetuses were was for miners. Um, and the other one was for aviators, to enable aviators to go higher. And in the First World War, you see the first military aviation, really. And as the war went on, the planes got higher and higher and higher, and, and they found they needed oxygen. So they developed uh, systems for 
for loading cylinders with compressed oxygen. Um, but they also had other technologies which they thought was going to be lighter. And uh, they had something called oxylife, which was a chemical which, when combined with water, produced oxygen. But the trouble was that it also produced peroxide, which is a, a bleach. And so you would be <laughs> inhaling this oxygen, but it also had bleach in it. So obviously not very nice. The, the, the advantage of it was supposedly that it was lighter. You didn't have to carry so much. The tr it was always when people were thinking about oxygen in those days because they're, they're using steel cylinders and kind of heavy rubber hoses and heavy masks. It's that, you know, you're having to carry extra weight, but against that, you're getting a benefit from it. So it's a sort of cost-benefit thing, you know. Well, the oxygen is going to enable us to feel better so we can climb faster, but we've got to carry the damn stuff, you know. So that was the, that was the problem. Saving weight, but I don't think you want to be chloroforming yourself on the top no, of a mountain. It sounds too easy to work, but could it have worked to have like maybe a small plant in like a in like a box or something, like a little water bottle? I think you'd have to have a lot of plants, wouldn't you? Uh, yeah, or at least some strong moss. You could be chewing some plants. I mean, that's what they do in the Andes, isn't it? They chew coca, which is a sort of <laughs> Uh, a derivative of cocaine, I think, or a, a predecessor to cocaine, and that enables them to operate at high altitudes, you know, to f yeah, for farmers. Um, a little so, caffeine-like boost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know. I mean, it was funny, you know, in, when it came to the 1950s that um, there were lots of novel technologies and, and people wrote in to the, the Everest team and said, what about having a hose pipe, you know, which a bit like a diver that you could connect mm. this hose pipe and then you don't have to carry the cylinders. But I've got, obviously that's not really going to work because mm. the topography is so dangerous. And, you know, the, the, as I said, there was a debate about this. And in the 1920s, one, in 1922, the main person behind the oxygen um, um, cylinders was a scientist called Finch. And, and he thought it was perfectly logical for you to use oxygen. And couldn't understand when all these people were saying it wasn't sporting. And he said to them, well, look, hang on a minute. If you could have this oxygen in a pill, would you still think it wasn't sporting? You know, and, mm -hmm. and where do you stop? He said, look, you know, you're telling me the oxygen isn't sporting, but you're willing to carry thermos flasks. You know, you're willing to do certain things which you think are all right, and then you draw the line at, at other things. But, but, you know, these days, if you look at Everest, the – the people who go on commercial expeditions, um, they tend to use a lot of oxygen. And the people who are the world's elite climbers don't use any oxygen at all and have proved that you can get to the top of Everest without oxygen. So you don't, you know, so it is possible to do it, you know. Um, and it's seen now as a mark of your elite status. Uh, yeah. But for ordinary people, they're thinking, well, look, uh, my priority is just to get there. And so. If I can use oxygen, then I'll do so. Yeah. If you stay up there too long without oxygen, it will like get you sick and like finish you off, right? The, the kind of you know, yeah, you can't, you don't want to stay high for too long. But then it's very much about individual adaptation, and so some people find themselves that they can adapt much more quickly, and other people find it incredibly hard. So, but there'd be no reason to stay up there for very long, you know. So. All right. And just a little bit of a background so the audience knows too. 
who are these people of this first expedition? They, they were, you know, the, they were all chosen, if you like. And the main, uh, uh, ch- the two organizations behind it were, there was a, a climbing club called the Alpine Club, um, which was a, a, a based in London. And these were the, the sort of top mountaineers of the, their era. And then there was another body called the Royal Geographical Society. And that was a, a British institution which financed and um, expeditions to go around the world, collected maps, collected data. So they were the two organizations behind it. And um, they talked amongst themselves and said, well, who do you know you think is capable of doing this and came up with a list of, of potential mountaineers. But again, you know, so there's a, there was a selection process, if you like, in a way that today there isn't a selection process. It's only based on whether you can afford it, essentially. Um, who were okay? Who were these people that applied and well were selected? Like, what what kind of people were they? A lot of them were soldiers. They were mainly upper class and middle class British people. They were all men, uh, um, and women weren't considered at the time. Most of them had been to private schools. Um, several of them had been to the army. If they hadn't been to the army, they'd been to Oxford or Cambridge. So they're very much the elite, they're the British elite, because it was an elite sport in those days, because it was an expensive sport, and um, and so and this, so the selection process was very much about um, if you were known to the right people. There yeah. wasn't sort of they didn't go and you know it wasn't like the Apprentice where they. They had to sort of, they whittle down from 70 candidates down to 10 and then chose the 10 best. And, and that did happen in the 1950s, say, for example, when the first team to climb K2 was an Italian team and they went out in Italy and, and, and got people to apply for it and were recommended for it, the sort of best mountaineers. And then they took them onto a camp in the Alps and then they... Um, they put them through their paces and then decided who were the best ones. So there was a sort of training process, if you like. This was nothing like that. In, for the early Everest expeditions, it was very much who did you know, How? what was your reputation, uh, did you come from the right social circle, were you thought of as a good climber. There, there was very little experience. Nobody had been to the Himalayas really very much, so there was – couldn't really go on people's track records to the same extent as you might do today. Gotcha. And what were the names of the people that were finally selected and went through that process? Well, the, the, the main, in 1922, the, the two principal climbers were George Mallory, who was a, uh, a school teacher, but well known for climbing in the Lake District and in Wales, in England. And the other one was a, um, George Finch. It was the two Georges who was an Australian, but was working at Imperial College in London. Um, and and he was a scientist, and but known as a, a kind of brilliant mountaineer because he'd been to school in, in Switzerland. And then the other members of the team were, there were a couple of doctors, uh, Howard Somerville. Uh, um, there were several soldiers, uh, a famous climber called Edward Norton. The leader of the expedition was another soldier, um, Jeffrey uh, or Charles Bruce, uh, his nephew Jeffrey Bruce was another of the climbers. You know, quite a lot of the people who who were in the British Army who patrolled the Himalayas or the foothills of the Himalayas, they were people who were well acclimatized to working 
at high altitude, even if they didn't have recreational climbing experience. And also, crucially, they could speak the local languages. Um, so a lot of them, so there's a sort of, more of them were from England than from people who were based in India already, but there was a contingent of people who were based in India working either in the army or for various bits of the British civil service. All right. So they make the attempt, they go on the journey. What ends up happening? Uh, well, they they basically, they managed to get on time to to their base camp. And the next thing was to get lots and lots of supplies high enough up on the mountain to to make an attempt on the top. They succeeded in doing that. Um, they made the first attempt, which was led by Mallory, and he got to just under 27,000 feet. So it's 2,000 feet below the um, the summit, but it smashed all the world altitude records at the time. Why did he um, turn around? What happened? Pardon me? Why did he turn around? Why couldn't he Why did he turn around? Because... I think they they were exhausted and they'd they'd left one member of their team who was suffering from frostbite a bit lower down. And they thought, if we don't turn around now, we're not going to be able to take him down the mountain. So they turned around at this point. Then the second attempt was led by um, this Australian finch using oxygen. And um, he managed to get about between 200 and 400 feet higher and, uh, and set yet and broke another record. So now they were within 1,800 feet of the summit. By, by, by this time, it was the end of May. They, they kind of shot their load. They, several of them had got frostbite. Um, they were suffering from exhaustion. Um, but they decided to make one final attempt, uh, led by George Mallory. Uh, but by this time, the monsoon had just started to hit. There was a lot of snow on the mountain, and they were hit by a big avalanche. And the avalanche, amazingly, the, the British climbers survived it out of luck um, rather than anything else. Uh, but uh, seven of their porters were caught up in the avalanche and died. And that's how it all ended. You know, They'd been very lucky on the first two attempts. Lots of things had gone wrong, but uh, they'd managed to, to, to kind of stay alive. But by the time they did their third attempt, they were pushing their luck just too hard. And were caught up in an avalanche. Yeah, so, and that and then, was the end of the story, you know. But, but it was seen back in England as being, you know, a, a kind of triumph in the sense that it was an amazing first start to set new world records to get higher than anybody had been before. Um, and they all thought, uh, well, the next time round, we'll make it to the top. The people were still optimistic. They weren't like more scared now. I think people always afterwards tend to see the positive side. And so uh, a month later, by the time they got back to England, they'd forgotten about the avalanche. They, they weren't thinking about that. They were thinking about the successes rather than the failures uh, and, and were convinced that they, if they tried again, that they, it would, they would succeed. <laughs> yeah, forgot about it. Hey, w- weren't there seven more of us? Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. All right, well... Mike Conifree, thanks so much for coming on the show. Right. Well, great. Well, I, I hope you, uh, it was great talking to you. I hope you in, enjoyed reading the book. I did. Although I didn't get the final few chapters of it because I don't know if they're done yet. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Well, That's what you call a cliffhanger. Literally, yeah. Talking about Everest cliffhangers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Then, a- well, I'm about to expire with the excessive heat here. So, 
I didn't stick my head in the fridge. <laughs> I'll let you do that. But lastly, right. is there a final message you'd like to tell the audience? A final message I'd like to tell the audience. Uh, yeah, take global warming seriously. I mean, if you look at those early expeditions, one of the things that they they came back with was photographs showing all the glaciers around these Himalayan mountains, most of which have now either disappeared or are well on the way to disappearing. So um, there's plenty of evidence from the kind of world's highest points that, that global warming is a reality. And, you know, whether it's caused by petrol fumes or whatever causes it, that's irrelevant, really. But the important thing is to try and um, to, to, to try and stabilize things and, um, and do something about it. It doesn't matter who caused it, whether you believe it's from petrol or, or not. That doesn't matter. But are you going to make it worse or make it better? That's your only choice, isn't that really? And that was Mike Conifery. To find his book, Everest 1922, click a link in the description. If you tune in through the radio, I highly recommend you check out the podcast. It helps me grow a lot more, so I really do appreciate that. You can find information at podcastthewade.com. Follow on Instagram or Twitter at podcasttheway. And again, for any information you need, find the Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any streaming platform. You can go to podcastthewaycom This is FM 91.7, WHO stores at the top of the hour. Also, FM 90.3. WRIU South Kingston at the top of the hour. And as always, deuces. This has been the Way Podcast. If you want to know more about the Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. <laughs>